your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hey, Jason. We're back again. We're back. It's the last episode of the year. It is. It is. Our next episode in uh, in another fortnight will be our year in review special. So you can you can look for that on January 3rd. But uh, this is the last. We're capping off 2016. So we're going to talk about John Glenn today. But first we have a couple of pre-flight checklist items. So what's going on yeah. with Cassini? Well, it's, Cassini is, <laughs> I mean, I, what I put in the show notes is Cassini gets reckless. But I could also <laughs> say, like, Cassini is uh is is uh throwing caution to the wind you know the cassini mission in saturn it's going to end in 2017 and so they have saved their most dangerous maneuvers for now because they didn't want to they're not super dangerous but they're more dangerous than flying in completely open space which is they're basically grazing the rings of saturn they're coming uh close to the planet and going inside the rings which is pretty spectacular. Um, and they've been planning this for a long time. They're going to make 19 passes like this once a week through the end of April. Um, and, uh, you know, you, when you're in those ring areas, there's the possibility that you're going to end up hitting something. There's more stuff there. And, you know, and you're closer to the planet. So they saved it for the end. But they're doing it now because they can afford to be a little reckless now that we're getting toward the end of the Cassini mission, which ends in September. So they're going to make, um, uh, let's see, on April 22nd, when they finish this group, they're going to they're gonna fly close to Titan, which is going to change the orbit. Um, and then it makes uh, 22 super close orbits of Saturn that ends with the death dive in mid-September. So um, Cassini's doing interesting things now uh, in terms of its orbit. And that's going to allow us to see things that we couldn't necessarily see before when it was in a more you know safe, gentle orbit around Saturn. That's cool. There'll be some cool pictures. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that imagery big time. Yeah, like closest to a to the to Saturn's rings, I think that any imaging spacecraft has ever ever done. I think some spacecraft have come close to the rings um when they were like in like flying by or something like that. That might be that might not be true. That there was that there or it maybe even Cassini's insertion, but uh it, nothing like this, I think. So, that's cool. Uh, so you also have a story in here about the orbit of the Earth and yeah, the, breaking the... news. Earth, uh, <laughs> Earth down. has a Earth has a rotation, and the rotation is is slowing, which means the days are getting longer. We've known this for a long time, but this is a cool story. Um, we'll put it in the show notes. They uh, so some scientists have used data from ancient astronomers from going back two or three thousand years to make uh basically what they did is they looked at records of eclipses and based on where and when those observations were made they can make uh some pretty good guesses about when you know basically when were the observations 
made and what do we expect knowing what we do about the slowing of the earth rotation the, the earth rotation slows because i mean not to put a find a point on it like the tides and stuff we got a lot of water sloshing around and it actually slows the rotation of the earth by tiny amounts by incredibly small amounts but if you um if you look over the course of 2500 years it can be um it can be a lot like um even though even those tiny amounts add up so over the course of of 2500 years um that should add up to about 7 hours difference um from what we would have expected and that's that's what this research found is that they believe these observations of ancient eclipses 2500 2700 years ago are happening off from what they expected and so as a result they actually think that the earth's rotation is slowing um in a more slowing slower which is a dumb thing to say but it is getting um it it is spinning slower uh by a less less of an amount there we'll do it that way by less of an amount than was expected um and this i think it's cool because we're using scientific observations from people who have been dead for 2500 years it's and pretty, that's i mean pretty cool but they're giving us data data we can use um and that's awesome so there's a bunch of other stuff in the story too like how the amount of ice in uh ice caps versus in the ocean can actually affect it it's a it, this is one of those cases where we we the simplified sort of orbital mechanics and things like that when you're looking at planets and, and and orbits around the sun and things like that like you can do the math you can do the physics and 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 it's a, a very clear um calculation you can make but this is something that is affected by the dynamic nature of earth's ecosystem the fact that you know if there's more water sloshing around it's different than if there's more water locked in ice and so as a result we don't know to that great precision about what this effect is and so you have to you know you have to do things like um read ancient texts from china and egypt and other places like that and try to get you know bab from babylon and get an idea of this which is pretty cool so fascinating to me that you we can you know find these records and then interpret them in a way that is actually helpful like it, it just it really is pretty mind-blowing yeah and uh one other thing i'd never really thought of before is the uh, the story that i read uh, quoted a, a scientist as saying nothing else on earth cares about when an eclipse happens which i think is really good so many so much ancient data is taken from rocks or tree trunks or ice layers or things like that where you're measuring things that were laid down and stored in a record a fossil record an ice you know ice core record whatever um, eclipses don't do that, but they're really noticeable for people <laughs> and they get, people get really excited when there's an eclipse and they write it down. And that's the only way that we can test something like this is by finding those observations. That's cool. So this week we want to talk a little bit about, uh, John Glenn who passed away on December 8th. Glenn, of course, was the first American to orbit the earth and he holds the record for being the oldest person ever in space. So kind of really two cool fence posts, you know, yeah. two uh, end caps on his uh, NASA career. And between those two groundbreaking missions, he served in politics as a U.S. senator from Ohio. Um, so I thought we could get into this a, a little bit and, and kind of uh, work our way through 
uh, John Glenn's life and talk about some of his background and how he got to to be that very famous Mercury astronaut and then what happened uh, after that. Yeah, yeah. So John Glenn is a Ohio native. He was born in uh, July of 1921 in Cambridge, Ohio. His dad was a plumber, um, owned a plumbing business. His mom was a teacher. Um, he and an adopted sister were largely raised in New Concord, Ohio. And um, in a story that is kind of near to my heart, he went to college at tiny Muskingum College, which is now, I think, Muskingum University, of course. Uh, he enrolled in 1939 to study engineering. Um, that's where my grandparents met. Oh, wow. <laughs> was at, 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 now, they were, my mom was born in 1939, so they had long since left Muskingum by the time John Glenn enrolled. But that little college, and my, my uh, grandparents are from Pennsylvania, but that's right across the border, basically, in Ohio. And uh, so, yeah, go Muskingum. That was always a, one of those claim to fames of like, well, you may not know this thing, but John Glenn went there, and so did your grandparents. So that's cool. <laughs> uh, he got a pilot, pilot's license in 41. Um, didn't graduate from Muskingum because he uh, enlisted in the Air Force. You know, World War II, Pearl Harbor, that was what was done. Um but he wasn't actually uh, called into service, uh, so he enlisted in uh, 42 as an aviation cadet in the, uh, in the U.S. Navy and had a, uh, a distinguished Navy career as a pilot. He flew transport, uh, transport planes. He threw, flew uh, 59 combat missions from the Marshall Islands. He was awarded two distinguished flying crosses and 10 air medals. And then um, after World War II, he was a pilot instructor. Um, as a Marine, and then was sent to Korea, where he flew another 63 combat missions. So basically, before John Glenn, the astronaut, even happened, this was a guy who had flown more than 100 combat missions, um, probably more like 150, was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross twice more and the Air Medal eight more times. <laughs> so, so you know, he had, a, he had quite a resume. And it's funny, um, you and I were on an episode of The Incomparable where we watched The Right Stuff, which, you know, a big part of that and Tom Wolfe's book. Um, and my understanding is that John Glenn liked the book but didn't like the movie, but hmm. um, that he thought it was uh, sort of a little too extreme and, and didn't have the nuance that the book had. But... Um, but what that what that showed was like the decisions in the early astronaut program were kind of like, uh, who do we who do we hire uh, to do this to run space spacecraft space capsules? And you look at the the early resume that John Glenn built up, and you you can see like, hey, uh, that's a pretty good resume. I can see why why that might lead to better bigger and better things later on because you know flying 150 combat missions that's pretty spectacular in two wars. Yeah, it's it's one heck of a resume, and the thing that jumps out at me is he he enlists in the Air Force, he ends up flying for the Navy, and then he gets out and trains pilots as a Marine, like just for the Marines, just uh, keeps on <laughs> you got, serving. You got to co cover all your bases. You got to get all your services covered. Yeah, it's, it's very important. It's really great. Um, he married his wife Annie in 1943. Uh, they had two children. And remained married until his death earlier this month. Another unusual trait of astronauts. Yes. Very m most most astronauts did not their marriages broke up. I mean, that's the best way to put it. Is there are it's a very rare, long standing 
uh, marriage. Uh, Jim and Marilyn Lovell are another example of that, but they are the exceptions to the rule. And and John Glenn and and, and Annie Glenn are are in that category. Mm-hmm. And this, this there's a story in the right stuff about this, but Annie spoke with a severe uh, stutter until later in life, and she really shied away from the public eye. And there's a story that I just I absolutely love the way it's depicted in the movie The Right Stuff. Oh yeah, where it's leading up to his flight and the then vice president Lyndon Johnson wants to come visit her with the press and sit with her and, and watch the coverage. And she's uncomfortable with that. She doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to be on TV. Doesn't want to, you know, talk to the vice president. And so she calls her husband. She's like getting yeah. ready to climb on a rocket. And he basically puts his foot down and says, if she says she's not comfortable with it, if she says she doesn't want to do it, then that's the answer. It's your, it's your house. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that sequence is is backward. Like Johnson's trying to get in, and then they scrub the mission, and then Johnson wants to go in and console her. And at that point, Glenn is back out, and and gets on the phone with her and says, "No, it's your house. If he, do, you know, you don't want him to come in, you don't have to make him come in." But he was really protective. Like, there's another scene in that movie where. Um, all the other wives and girlfriends think that he, that she is like totally stuck up and standoffish and they think the Glens like they think they're better than us and all of that. And then they go back to the hotel room and it turns out that she has this severe stutter and has a very hard time getting any words out. And, uh, you, you know, your heart melts a little bit there because you're like, oh, like now I understand why. And everybody think, doesn't understand because. It, it's it's some great stuff, and then the amazing thing is she had she got spe- uh, speech therapy in the seventies, I want to say, and um, sort of found a story in a newspaper that said these people were doing this speech therapy that was curing stutterers, and she enrolled, and um, it worked, and she became a successful public speaker. It's wild. It's just it's really cool. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. So, uh, after Korea, uh, Glenn is out of again, out again, but then applies to be a test pilot in the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School, which was housed in Maryland. And this was a, you know, it's, it's kind of like what we see in the right stuff, but this is a a group of pilots who are right at the very edge of what's possible. They're testing new equipment. Uh, Glenn actually completes the first supersonic transcontinental flight. Uh, going from California to New York in just about three and a half hours, so he's he's pushing boundaries. He's taking all you know the tons and tons of experience uh, being in two wars, and is now applying that to being a test pilot. Right, and that leads directly into the Mercury program, where they, uh, as depicted in the right stuff, they. Uh, we're not sure who an astronaut was. It's funny when you think about it now, like, of course, the astronauts are like test pilots and scientists and they're... But in the early days, as depicted, I mean, it's depicted sort of with comedy, with, uh, with uh, what, Harry Shearer, um, uh, as like, you know, we got some jugglers in here <laughs> and, some, and some, uh, some demolition derby drivers and all of that. But they decided like test pilots was the right thing to do. Those are the people who are used to being on the cutting edge and flying experimental aircraft. And that is, uh, that is essentially what these are. So they put out the call and there were a hundred pilots that met the credentials and then they did all the testing and interviews and tested them in all sorts of bizarre ways and picked seven of them. And that's the Mercury seven uh, chosen in 1959 to be the first Americans in space. 
At this point, Glenn had something like 9,000 hours of flying time, including 3,000 hours in jets. I mean, th- these are the the cream of the crop as it comes yeah. to, to America's pilots. You don't just like fall out of bed and become an astronaut, is what we've learned here. Is that you? You these these guys were the elite of aviators, essentially, when they were um, when they were recruited. Which is is funny because, of course, the um, again famously depicted in the right stuff and 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 in many other books about this as well. The original capsules were basically. Um, foolproof, like literally they could shoot a, a a dog or a monkey up into space, and it really rubbed the test pilots the wrong way that they were they were the monkey and um and that was incredibly frustrating for um for Glenn and the other mercury pilots and they made um they tried to get more pilot control the idea that if something goes wrong up there, they needed controls to see if they could fix what was wrong if things you know if things didn't work out exactly right and that that was important because nasa was sort of approaching it from a remote control perspective that the person in the chair was really for pr and and not a lot else and they were great for pr right they're like ticker tape parades mm-hmm. and stuff when missions were over but that's not the same as the actual like uh you know doing something and being able to use your skill as a as a, an aviator to keep yourself alive in case there's a a, a, a mistake of some sort uh malfunction in when you're in space and glenn became sort of a the de facto leader of this group i mean uh we talked we touched on it earlier but he sort of at times acted as the morality police when it came to the, to the other astronauts um but he was also at the forefront of a lot of the the press and in interviews and whatnot, right? And even though Alan Shepard was the first American in space, you know his flight was suborbital. Uh, really, John Glenn, after his flight, kind of became the sort of the most famous of the group. I think. Yeah, yeah, and I think there was some frustration, uh, certainly from Alan Shepard, about that. But uh, the fact was that Glenn was really good at it. I mean, you see later that he becomes a senator, right? He was good at communicating, and there are scenes in the right stuff where you see that, like, everybody else is sort of like, well, all all shucks, you know, I'm happy to be here. And then Glenn's like, it's very important that we realize the end. They're like, whoa, wait, who's this guy? Where did this guy come from? And uh, and so, you know, he says that the being the morality police, and it, it was overstated that a lot of the guys in the Mercury 7 were... Um, the story is that they were kind of um, way out of line in terms of being like visibly uh, cheating on their wives and, and, you know, partying with the, with the girls in, in Florida. Um, And he, you know, I think where, where it comes to my gut feeling is where it comes to overstatement is that he probably wasn't this like super, um, super, screwed down moral you must honor your marriage and you know even in the right stuff it's sort of played as this looks bad like guys we are pr for the space program you need to you need to not be aware of the image that you're projecting here and i think that's probably a little bit more of what it was than don't be immoral and cheat on your wife i think i I think maybe glenn although he was an example of of you know having a long relationship i think he was he was also reacting to um having the whole program look bad if they became notorious astronauts right that would be a different image for for astronauts yeah i think i think that's fair um 
Unfortunately, in July of 1962, there was a, a House Space Committee in Congress uh, talking about the inclusion or exclusion of women from the NASA Astronaut Corps. And Glenn, I think, comes comes down pretty clearly on the wrong side of history here. Um, there was no official policy prohibiting women in practice, but the requirements had kind of been built in a way where it was going to be all men. It's and, all test pilots, right? And, yeah. and 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 test pilots come from fighter pilots, and, and none of those jobs were you know were women really um, right. doing it. And Glenn stood behind that, and I can see his point of view from just the like the job requirement perspective. But you know, clearly the whole system was was uh, needed change, and and thankfully they have changed it slowly. But um, and there's lots more work to do there. But I think that. You know, like you said, it came out of the the test pilot, fighter pilot background, and you know NASA's view of an astronaut was very narrow at this time. That only these types of people with these types of skills can be astronauts, and over time that has broadened and has made it more inclusive. But this is definitely something where where Glenn, I think, comes down on the the wrong side of things. Yeah, yeah, and you can see he's inside of that. It's a it's a very you know it's a male dominated profession and it's a in the, in that time I mean Star Trek as forward looking as Star Trek was um, you know Star Trek's last episode declared that no women were allowed to be captains of starships that's what kind of a vision of the future is that Gene Roddenberry right not, yeah not but, a good one but it was not considered even like they were very. Um, feminist for the time in some ways and yet even there they're like but not that that's ridiculous right so it was it was the 60s yeah but uh yeah exactly so his his mercury flight took place february 20th uh, 1962 his capsule is named the friendship seven a hundred this number blows in mind 135 million people watched the launch on television the biggest single audience to the time and, of course, it's historic because he actually made orbits around the Earth where, as Shepard and uh, Grissom's flights were basically up and then back down, he right. made three total orbits. Yeah, and this is what has come to be the milestone. Like, um, John Glenn, this is why he became well-known, is that uh, e- even though the, the Russians were really ahead, they had already orbited at that point. Um, this was uh, having him, this this telegenic... Uh, spokesperson for the astronaut corps and having him do the multiple orbits it it captured the imagination of america it made him famous and uh and so he made his three orbits uh he was in space for about five hours this is this history making um well he wasn't even in orbit for five hours he launched a splashdown for five hours total time elapsed uh, not not a whole lot of time but it was huge it made an indelible impression in at least the american uh, public. Uh, there's a couple things of note about the mission. Uh, one, again, it's made famous in the right stuff, is that he mentions uh, what he calls fireflies swirling around uh, the window uh, that he can see out of. Chances are that was ice, like being vented off the spacecraft, you know, uh, reflecting light back. But it was, um, it's an interesting moment if you go in and read about it. That you know, this guy who is like this hardened jet pilot just shows extreme joy and wonder at this you know at what he's seeing out his window uh he he has some very famous comments about the view and and seeing the curvature of the earth and and all these things that are 
so like wonder feel wonder filled that kind of stray from you know the what you would think these type of guys you know would comment on but uh he was just sort of caught up in the moment i think yeah and it was a mystery for a while about what these things were because they are um they're not right it doesn't make sense that there are fireflies in space but they actually think that it was it was ice or um actually an ejection of waste so like uh like a urine ejection or something like that, but it's basically liquid stuff coming out of the spacecraft and crystallizing and being caught in uh, the sun. And so they would, they would light up in the sunlight and, uh, and that is probably what he saw. And that they may, I think they might even have, some of it might've sublimated, which would, which would impart a little bit of movement to them that would create this kind of firefly effect. So it, it took, them a while to figure out what it was he saw but that's what they that's what they figure now it wasn't it wasn't magic it wasn't space magic and there there was also concern about the heat shield right yeah that was a little extra bit of drama right the retro pack which is the rocket motors uh you know they were still over the heat shield um and the idea there was to hold it in place they didn't eject it because they if the shield was loose um, they thought the retro pack might be able to hold it in place. It was one of these kind of early examples of NASA kind of MacGyvering its way through, uh, 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 you know, it's a true engineering style, right? And <laughs> it was fine. It turned out to be just fine. But there was there was a little drama there about, um, you know, reentry for that. So he uh, he comes home uh, to a, a parade in New York Ticker City. Ticker tape parade. Woo! Four million people astronauts yay it's wild yay yeah they loved him they loved him so much that basically nasa said we can never let you fly again because you're too much of a hero and that would be bad if something went bad and you died so we're gonna leave you as a trophy Mm -hmm. and he uh didn't want to do that so he left and he and and it sounds like the kennedys like urged him to run for office um so you know, he he ended up being elected to the Senate in 1974 um, and held, the, held that seat until uh, 1999. So he was a long-serving uh, Democrat from Ohio in the Senate. Um, and the, the low light of this was uh, probably um, being accused with four other senators as the Keating Five, which mm-hmm. was a corruption scandal about taking a donation from uh, a guy who was a savings and loan uh, chairman, savings and loan official, Keating, Charles Keating. And uh, it was it was quite scandalous. This is people don't remember this anymore because we've had so many other bank related financial meltdowns since then. But the SNL crisis in the 80s was kind of a big deal. It was a it, there was a it was a major financial crisis and uh, and there was corruption and they found that these five senators had taken donations and and Glenn was um, eventually cleared because although he did take the donation um and they, they thought that that was poor judgment, that he wasn't uh, seen as, you know, performing any favors in exchange for the donation or anything like that. But that was that was uh, so he was cleared. But still, it's an unfortunate mark on his record that he's considered one of the Keating five. He also ran for president a couple of times, um, including in 84. He was beaten by Mondale for the nomination. And then, of course, Mondale was, had the pants beaten off of him by Reagan. Um, in the general election, but he, uh, you know, not, neither time could he get uh, the nomination. So, 
um, it's an, still an amazing story to think that that uh, you know astronaut turns into um, you know many decade senator. That's uh, quite a transition. Mm-hmm. And those two things end up overlapping a little bit in 1998. <laughs> So he's uh, 77 years old, and he flies on the space shuttle Discovery, becoming the oldest person to travel in space and the only sitting U.S. senator to do so, which I like. Uh, he had been lobbying NASA basically to, to let him be a, a human test bed for uh, geriatric studies in space. He took part of experiments about sleep monitoring and some protein use. And uh, was reportedly upset that NASA didn't send more 70-somethings uh, after him on the shuttle. But uh, it's I, I remember this. I mean, I was, um, I guess I was in like eighth grade. And I remember it being in the news that John Glenn, you know, this, this American hero, uh, now, you know, a uh, retiree basically was going to... Uh, to be in space uh, above aboard the space shuttle, and I remember thinking even then that it was, it, it seemed weird, it seemed unusual, but seemed uh, pretty interesting at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that yeah, was was it kind of a PR stunt? Was it kind of politics? Sure, yeah, but um, what a perfect opportunity on that level to get people paying attention to what NASA was doing in the in these kind of like latter days of the space shuttle program that that. Um, you know, we didn't realize it at the time, but there was a the Columbia accident was just around the corner, and uh, then the wind down. But uh, this was a you know it, it had been up and back up and running for a decade, and this was a thing that gave it a little bit of excitement was to have Glenn do it, and and then yeah, the idea of having the oldest person in space, um, and that that's cool. That's a that's a cool idea. He's not the first sitting member of uh of uh like national office in the u.s to fly um, two others bill nelson and jake garn um also flew in space shuttles um so there have been others but it's been uh you know it, but his is by far the most notable right so um i think they were i think and also nelson and Gar Nelson was a member of the House of Representatives when he, um, when he flew, and then later was elected to uh, to the Senate. And then Garn, I don't know, did he? I think maybe he retired from the Senate and then flew. Um, I, I forget the I forget the the sequence there, but those are the those are the two um, examples okay. of. Uh, of uh, others so it's not basically yeah if you're one of the people who funds nasa you have a chance to go into space (laughs) a little bit a little bit but if you're john glenn i mean it just kind of goes without saying yeah yeah Uh, in 2012 obama awarded him the presidential medal of freedom the nation's highest civilian honor so this is after you know decades of military service and military awards was also awarded this um News of his death broke, like we said, on December 8th, um, and after his death, uh, Obama uh, put a statement out saying that um, Glenn reminded us that with courage and a spirit of discovery, there's no limit to the heights we can reach together. And that nice. he always had the right stuff. Yep. He's got to get that, get the joke in there. Of course. You got to get that in there. Uh, Buzz Aldrin also wrote a piece in the Washington Post uh, remembering John Glenn saying that, you know, Glenn was a hero and because of, you know, his work and his sacrifice and the work and sacrifice of 
you know, many others, we owe it to them to continue to push forward to 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 make it to Mars to explore the red planet and to to keep their work alive in discovering and pushing the boundaries in space. Yeah, I, I think one of the um difficult things about seeing these so Glenn was the last of the Mercury seven to be alive. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just a reminder about uh I feel like the you know we're we're losing um Apollo astronauts and at some point we're going to have nobody alive who's walked on the moon for example so it, it all of these and I'm sure that hits home for Buzz Aldrin right as somebody who walked on the moon yeah. that um you know it's it, it's sort of not surprising that Buzz Aldrin would turn this into also a you know let's consider the career of somebody like John Glenn and and consider um where we're going from here and who those people are that's you know my favorite thing the last line in Apollo 13 who will that be? Mm-hmm. Who are our explorers of the future? Where are we going? What's that doing? And and um, I th- thought it was great for Buzz Aldrin to bring that up when thinking of of John Glenn. That it's not just about looking back, but it's also you know what's the trail that he blazed and where does it go from here? So I think uh, I think that's it. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It was when when uh, the news broke. I mean, that was I, I think I sent you a, a message that said, "Well, I guess our next episode is about John Glenn." And so it is. Yeah, I'm glad we did it. Yeah. If you want to find the show notes for this week, you can do that on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 36. You can get in touch with us there, or you can find us on Twitter. Jason is at jsnell, and you can find me there at ismh. Until next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye. We'll be back next time with the year in review. Pew, 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 pew.